going to try to project my voice without a microphone. I don't have a uh, force of Rick, and uh, who is maybe the best classroom performer uh, I've witnessed in, in, uh, in an academic environment. I want to tell a story of uh, my favorite. You wouldn't know Norm Erickson taught at Trinity, New Testament Greek, and then he was head of the department of the of Bible at Wheaton when I was at a church next to Wheaton. So Norm Erickson was a humble, kind of quiet guy, but as a classroom performer, he was just, he could carry on three conversations at the same time. He could be answering a question of a student. I'm pointing here, that's where I sat. In his class, he sat alphabetically, so Andrews was you know, front row for a seat. I just love that in graduate school. And uh, he would be talking to two people in the back who were talking to each other, correcting them, and he would be lecturing the class all at the same time. And with his back to the board. So he calls me to the board one day. This is Greek. And it's like, okay, I'm learning my stuff. I'm not way behind the class, but nobody's ever going to accuse me of having a gift here. And I'm standing at the board, and he's a kind person, but direct. And he says, so Mr. Andrews, there's a, a sentence on the board from First Peter, and you'll see a particular kind of word in the middle of the sentence. What kind of word is that? Well, Mr. Erickson, I'm in front of the class now. That's a participle. Mr. Anderson, I guess I didn't know you would get that one. Thanks for the confidence. What kind of participle is it? I wanted to say Greek. Um, I said um, nominative. And he goes, Mr. Andrews, you exceed expectations. You know one of the three kinds of participles. If you had another guess, what would it be? Uh, adjectival. I gotta say, you're. It, it, uh, Mr. Andrews, you are just surprising us all. You know two of the three. If you had one final guess, what would it be? Adverbial. Yes, Mr. Andrews. It's an adverbial participle. And how do we know it's an adverbial participle? Now I've got my courage. Because we eliminated the other two possibilities. <laughs> which was an acceptable answer. He was a kind person. Then, I'm preaching in Glen Ellen. Been there a long time. Maybe over ten years. He's at Wheaton. He has a, I think he was free church. He goes to his church. He retires. And I think the way, I don't know how this works, but I think he was free to go worship now where he wanted to. So he starts coming to my church. I recognize him. I'm thinking, gee, this is what an honor. My Greek teacher is coming and, you know, listening to my preaching when he gets to go anywhere he wants to church in his retirement years and got to know his wife for the first time and, and all of this. And, uh, and then I'm thinking, you know what? I was not that great a Greek student. He's not coming here to see me as his shining example of his life's work. That's not why he's in the pew right now. And I want to let you know that was the moment I became an Old Testament preacher. <laughs> I, was just, I was afraid of him standing up and saying, could you tell someone about the participle in that sentence? <laughs> no, actually, I don't know any more than I was when I was your student. You have something in your hand. Does everybody have that in your hand? This will only work if you have that in your hand. Okay, my wife's telling me louder. This is the only time my wife actually wants to hear me is when I'm in class. So there I am. Um, but if you have this, this will help you because it's um, uh, four long quotes and um, some thinking. I need these four words in front of you. Um, Bringing a little bit together of uh, Rick's class on Calvin and Jeff's class on the Bible, where now he, he rests in the intertestamental period. The next thing is the advent of Christ. One of the things that we, you learn in the Old Testament 
you just kind of one of the things that's in your heart or your soul when you finish it is God is so faithful, Israel so unfaithful, or humanity so unfaithful. This has got to work out, but it's not working out. It's just not working out. And you heard me preach last summer on the first 11 chapters of Genesis, in which I say God goes through about six different plans of how this is going to work out, and has to end the plan with the flood, and the Tower of Babel, and the exclusion from the Garden of Eden, and all these restarts, and then Abraham becomes a huge restart, and you can argue all the restarts are under the Abrahamic covenant after that. But you finish the um, um, Old Testament, and you hear in our order of books, you hear the minor prophets just screaming at Israel for, this is not, you're not, you're not, and this is not working out, so how is this ever going to work out? And then we pick up these little hints, these little phrases, the little town of Bethlehem. Meek and lowly, he comes into Jerusalem. A virgin shall conceive and bear a son. These little phrases here and there that there is another, there's going to be another way, and it'll work out. And then we who look back on these passages, interpreting them through the gospel, mostly through Paul, and we read these Old Testament passages, and then we look at our world around us, and we still go, all right, so this is what it looks like when it works out? Something more? Yes? So the Augustine quote from the sermon that enough justice in this world so that we know that there is such a thing. This is not just pie in the sky. There can be justice. And, um, and that's possible. You, you, good people doing a good thing over the same period of time, you can provide some justice. But not so much as anyone would ever think, yeah, this is a just world. And if, if, if that seems like too critical a view of, of human nature, it's Calvinism, uh, of human nature and the current circumstances, uh, really, I challenge you, go talk to the poor and say, so it's a just world, isn't it? What do you think the answer is going to be? So that part of what Jeff was talking about, about something more, there needs to be some additional move, and that move always needs to be made by God. God makes all the first moves, all our moves are in response, and they're best out of gratitude, if not out of awe and fear and love and everything else, but it's always out of gratitude. And then Rick's class on Calvinism, about um, uh, how he taught us to read the scriptures along with the ancients, Augustine and others, in a way that uh, helps us to see the whole. That's what makes him a theologian. What makes him a Bible scholar is what you need to see is what the, what the scriptures say. So um, I want you to think about, for the, first of all, let me give you this verse. For he made him who knew no sin, the words to be are in italics. This is the King James. When it's in italics, they felt they needed to supply something to make the sentence work, but want us to know that didn't come from, in this case, the Greek, but um, they felt it needed to work. I think it works without it. I'll, I'll read it without it. But for he, God, made him, Christ, who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Well, there's a, uh, some, there's, some, there's a flip there, and I'm going to talk about flips in four ways. But let me read it without the to be. This is what the Greek sounds like. For he made him who knew no sin, sin. For us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him, as if the comma would be after the word sin. 
for he made him who knew no sin, sin. For us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. This, this act is for us. That's why the Nicene phrase, I just love, just love it. Who for us and for our salvation came down from heaven. There was a purpose in this. Not just a showiness in this. There was a purpose in for it. It was for us and for our salvation. God doesn't have to do anything for us. He does, doesn't require, I think the Bible more than hints, that he doesn't do everything for us. But he does this for us. God's interested in God's glory, and that may be the more primary way of thinking about this. So this flip, I'm using the most flippant word, the flip. How can we think about the flip in the Bible? Well, sometimes contrast. I want to say it's simpler, but I don't think there's anything simple about even the contrast. You get this mostly in John's Gospel. John's Gospel is the Gospel of light, love, and life. So it talks about life and death, sometimes in the same sentence. Contrast them. Light and darkness. In him there was no darkness at all. The night and the day are both alike. Um, uh, in him was light, uh, John 1. And the darkness has not overcome it. Those contrasts are already, there's no, there's no transaction taking place necessarily. But the contrast is there. There was this, and you can get that fairly from Isaiah. Those who sat in great darkness, those who sat in darkness, those who sat in the great darkness. On them a light has dawned. That there's an act of God and that's a contrast. Um, and uh, uh, you can get this in uh, phrases um, well your favorite John uh, verse John 3.16 should not die but have everlasting life that's a contrast um, I think there's more going on in all of those things than contrast but there's not less than that contrast is what's kind of on the surface and shines next is the idea of substitution he was pierced for our transgression Christ took our place and mostly this is talked about in terms of our, uh, the consequences of our sin, the punishment for our sin. That our sin, therefore our punishment. A just God punishes the sinner. That God will establish his justice. And um, you can't get this out of the Bible. To err is human, to forgive is divine. Somebody else made that one up. Um, injustice will be dealt with. And if unrepented, if, 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 if there's no conversion there, it will be dealt with harshly. That's in the passage I read today. So you get this lovely thing, the wolf will lie down with the lamb. Right after he slays the wicked. That the peace of Christ is established not just in peaceful terms. Whatever else the cross was, and however we might talk about it as the peace, that was a magnificently violent act. So much so that it repels some of our contemporaries who... I don't think there are trustworthy voices tell us to stop thinking less about atonement. And the phrase was uh, blood and gore and another father abusing his son. Let's get away from that idea. I remember being in a debate about that and said, actually, that's not an idea. We didn't come up with that one. The scripture said this. We didn't invent the, we didn't invent the cross. We've invented some other things that maybe we need to repent of and maybe we think is the word of God and it really wasn't. We just kind of invented it. But we got that one legitimately and we're horrified at it. But it's there. And this, this, um, this was a substitution, in part, not in whole, but in part to convince us, Jerry, that would be you, if it weren't for him. The wages of sin is death. And when, when 
the ideas of substitution began to percolate more from Paul's letters. Uh, Anselm early on, what we would call the Middle Ages, talks about ransom theory. Uh, I, I'm not, I don't care for the words theory. The Bible teaches the substitutionary atonement of Christ. It also teaches about seven other really significant and important ways that we're to think about the death of Christ. Substitutionary atonement being one, and so some people like to talk about seven theories, but when you talk about a theory, it's like, okay, maybe maybe one, maybe one of these is true. We'll, we'll test it out in the science lab for a few hundred more years, and we'll figure out. What, they're all true. Um, but one of them is, and so Anselm says, it, uh, ransom, the, the, the devil goddess. You can get this from Paul. Uh, you can get this legitimately from Paul. That we've been, we've been, we, we're captive. He's got us. And Christ sets the captives free. Well, who held us? Well, that would be Satan. And so he paid a ransom. The price was his own dying, which is what Satan always wanted. He wanted God to die. And so guess who's, guess who's left on top of the heap once God's gone? So God goes like this. And, and so there, you know, there's some parts of that that makes us wonder really quickly, like the devil got tricked, and that's what's happening. Now, that seems kind of trivial. Um, but Ansem uh, would respond and had responded by saying, he's the trickster. How does God undo evil? By going at the evil the way the evil is evil. And uh, the violence of this world is one of my favorite phrases and haunting phrases. The violence of this world will not stand up against the violence of heaven. Um, and yeah, the, the clever one, the deceitful one, uh, the one who has lied and fooled us is himself most magnificently fooled. Beaten at his own game. Um, Aquinas will take that and go, you know what, this isn't so much about the devil. Not that there ain't one. But the great exchange here, the great flip, is not, it's God. It's God's wrath. We have to deal with God. Not the devil's tricks, but God's wrath. This is his world. He has established this justice. We have not measured up. He is going to do something about it. He decided not to vent, is that the word? His wrath on us, but instead on Christ as our substitute. You know the song, In Christ Alone? I think most of us like it. It's a great mm -hmm. contemporary or modern hymn. Mm -hmm. We have a new uh, Presbyterian hymnal. I really like it. Um, we have the, um, it's the, called the purple hymnal. The one we have is the blue, the older one. Um, but Christ alone was seriously considered and not chosen. And that was the, that was the hymn that drew the most firestorm uh, in the Presbyterian Church. It's like, really, what's wrong with Christ alone? Well, it proclaims the wrath of God. And, and to their credit, they said, look at the hymnal, look at the rest of the hymns. The wrath of, the wrath of God's in the Bible, the wrath, the wrath of God's in our hymnal. We're not afraid, well, we are afraid of, but we're not afraid of the wrath of God in our hymnal. It's what is done with the wrath of God. There's still a debate going on, somewhat legitimate debate, in which what did God do with God's wrath? God turned away from it and said, I will not do that. Listen to Hosea. You who are a people, I will make you not a people. Your sin is such, there's no coming back. We're done. Next chapter, how can I let you go? I knew you before there was a you. I chose you to be my bridal partner. 
I cannot let you go. And that's what he did with his wrath. Another way of thinking about his wrath is he vented it. And after he slew the wicked, then it was exhausted and he was done. And that moment was the cross. That he who knew no sin was the sin. And against him, he felt the wrath of God. This member of the Trinity cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's the moment of the, the battle. And now he's done with it. Yeah. So in, in, the, in Christ alone, it's the wrath was satisfied? It was satisfied. So, so the idea in, in there is he, he, he uh, didn't turn away from it. He exhausted it on the battlefield. But the Presbyterian Church didn't like that? We are of two minds about it. <laughs> okay. Because um, you can get the one from, from Hosea. You know, it, 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 uh, um, I think it's the second. I think it was satisfied. But um, Hosea is Hosea, and these other, other prophets too. Uh, David's Psalms, I think, are the hardest for me to explain, and, and probably the ones where it's exampled the most often. My life is, I was almost, almost going to swear there, my life is bad. Uh, and it's getting worse, and my enemies surround me, and they bear false witness, and it's unbearable, it's unbearable, it's unbearable. And you are wonderful, the life you give me is great, I will rejoice in the goodness of the Lord. Oh, what happened between there and there? He says nothing about what happened. No psalm says. And then, I thought to myself, I know how I'll deal with these enemies. I'll do this. And you blessed it. And now my life, you don't get that in the Psalms. You don't get a narrative of how it changed. So you're left with, he knows life is crap. Can I say that out loud? No, no, I can't. Lois is in the room. Uh, my, my, my life is not good. And the goodness of the Lord is forever. And you just, paradox or whatever you want to call it, it's true. It's just, both are true. Or something happens in between David's not going to remember, because it's not the happening that's so And David doesn't know what happened in between. David didn't read the Gospels. We know what happened in between. My sins weigh me down. I'm in a pit so deep I cannot get out. The Lord's arm is long enough. What's the phrase? The Lord's arm is not, uh, arm is not too short. He, yeah, he can, he can lift me up and rescue me out. Um, of the pit I dug for myself um, and isn't the goodness of the Lord great and my gratitude now required um, we, we see those things Old Testament folks don't see those things as clearly but yet they trust it's just remarkable their level of trust most of the Old Testament characters who are righteous I think are there for us to model trust our third graders know more about the work of God than Abraham ever imagined and so, so why doesn't belief come more readily from us and a, a sense of confidence about these things so back to this idea of uh, substitution it's Calvin that will take um, Aquinas thing uh, Luther will come for uh, um, by faith you're saved you're justified um, by faith I don't want to hear anything else there's a period at the end of the sentence don't give me a comma or an and or a but or a nevertheless we're justified by God's grace, we receive this through faith. I like a, a great phrase is that uh, 
Um, faith is the gift of God. That's not something we muster up inside ourselves. Faith is a gift of God that permits us to receive all the other gifts of God. So faith is that prior gift that allows us, at least in the receiving of the gifts, to recognize these as gifts and from God. And, of course, Calvin's all over that. But what Calvin is going to do is he's going to say, and yes, the means by which this is done is Aquinas not far off from it. We have to deal with God. It's God's justice that will be satisfied. God just doesn't want, wake up one morning and say, this is just really hard, and they're never going to get it. So I'm quitting on the justice project. <laughs> what, whatever they do, hopefully it's better than bad. I'm just going to have to accept that. And humanity is always going to get an incomplete, but I'm not going to flunk them. I don't think you can get that out of the God of the Bible, Old Testament or New Testament. I think, I think what you get is, these are my eternal purposes, and it will happen. It would be very good for you to participate in those purposes, to recognize them, to acknowledge them, and to actively participate in them. But, same thing I think with evangelism. He will be known. Every knee will bow. Every tongue confess. It would be really good if they were persuaded they, they wanted to do this. And that's the work of evangelism. But it will happen. Um, Christ at the end of the days isn't going to uh, say to the world or to the Father, gee, I really tried. I could only get 46% of them. Now what are we going to do? We were not successful. I don't, I don't think that's the way that works. I think God, nothing intervenes between God's purpose and God's accomplishment except a lot of human history and a lot of revelation that clarifies we're going there. So that's the idea of substitution. One of the substitutionary phrases is in Isaiah. I think more than substitution is going on there, but he was pierced for our transgressions. That was supposed to be for me. By his stripes we are healed. That's a little bit more of the next point, this exchange. You know, who said I needed healing? Well, I was wounded. Um, but he became wounded. He becomes wounded. I become healed. How does that transfer? What kind of transaction takes place? Um, so we have a third category called exchange. His righteousness for my sins. There was a switch. The things that I had, poverty, um, self-centeredness, arrogance, all manner of sin. And he has humility and riches and God's glory in the incarnation. This has more to do with the incarnation than it does with passion and death. In the incarnation, they were switched. He took on our poverty. As a sign of that, he's born in the manger. He wasn't the only baby that night born in a manger somewhere. It's not the poorest of the poorest of the poorest, if that's the point. But he wasn't born in a palace, and that is part of the point. Because that makes it more obvious to us, not only choosing the weak things to be strong, he wants the contrast, the exchange, to be more dramatic. So, some poor guy has to travel with his... Um, even poor, very pregnant wife um, a long distance in order to pay taxes because we all know 
Caesar Augustus rules the place. <laughs> Raise your hand if you're in doubt about that. He can tell you to go back to your homeland and, and get counted. So in order that, you can pay taxes. And paying taxes is an extreme act of government efficiency. One-fourth of the world's population is not taxed, not because they don't live in a nation, but because those national leaders can't get to that village to tax. It takes an incredible... We were in the Congo, uh, Lois and I, we were reviewing these things, throwing out files, or keeping files, more than throwing files out, though that was the point, of all the letters that were exchanged when we were in the Congo for a good part of the summer in 98. And they told me they're not taxed by the national government. The national government can't show up. This was at a village of 750,000 people. The government can't show up. They can't, they can't pay the roads. That was painfully clear every time we got in a Land Rover. Um, they can't provide any services. They can't tax. They just, it, it just, but Caesar Augustus, he can make you do it in Bethlehem. This guy rules. And Joseph, what's he? Mary, maybe even less so. Uh, because of her travails and the difficulty of the travels. And that's where he starts. And the exchange of riches and poverty begin then. The, two, the first two quotes, actually three, are about exchange. I want to get to it. But last, I want to get to reversal. Another way of thinking about this, and they, yes, they all bleed into one another, some more prominent than others, is that um, he has brought down the mighty, he's lifted up the lowly. This is a reversal of things. It's not simply we were poor, now we become rich. It's the rich become poor, and the poor become rich. That's in Miriam's song in Exodus 15, after the Israelites go across the Red Sea and are successfully on the other side, and they see Pharaoh and his army drown. They watch it happen. They watch the, most, uh, the largest army on the planet at the time drown in front of them. You've heard me do this story. I learned it when I was youth, and it hit with me. Maybe it's not as important as I keep saying it is, but I just love the story. Um, college freshmen sitting in a tree in college campus, and associate professor of some ology walks by, and the kid with his Bible open just says, praise the Lord. Well, this is something that needs to be deconstructed and taken out of the kid. So the professor leans over and says, why are you saying praise the Lord? Because I just read here that the Israelites just went across the Red Sea, the whole Red Sea on dry ground. And I said, well, okay, it's not the Red Sea, number one. It's the Reed Sea. And it's kind of a marsh. And it would be difficult. And they might not have been assured at the beginning that they were going to make it, but they made it, and they're glad. And they sang a song on the far end. And that's, that's what that story is about. Oh, he's, it is a professor. Oh. professor thinking his work is done and walks away, takes a few steps, and the kid yells out, uh, the guy, and the professor had said the reed seat in probably no more than two inches of water. He walks away, thinking his work is done, and uh, the kid yells out, praise the Lord. And the professor says, okay, what now? Pharaoh's army just drowned in two inches of water. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for laughing. That was funny when I was a teenager. I still think it's funny now. Um, it, it tells you my biases about, about uh, uh, some things. But... Um, there's a reversal. Uh, Miriam sings it. Hannah sings it. When uh, uh, Samuel is to be born to her, he brings down the, the barren 
The one who is barren has seven sons. The lowly are brought down. The rich are sent away hungry. Mary sings it. We hear it three times in the Bible. All women, all singing. You can talk about that as the miracle in Revelation. Is that It's also that Hannah knew what Mary had done. Mary knew what Hannah and Mary knew. They already knew the form of the hymn. When God speaks to you and some magnificent thing has shown you or promised you, the, the, the exodus, the, the salvation through the Red Sea, the birth of Samuel to a barren woman, the birth of the Savior to Mary. There's something to sing. This is about reversal. And women are going to sing it more than men. You can kind of get it out of Zechariah's song a little bit, and you can kind of get it out of Simeon's statement in the temple a little bit. But the women sing the song of the great reversal. Well, it's like asking the poor and the needy, just how just do you think this world is? It's not going to be in the 90s percent. Um, ask women. So do things, it, the first being last and the last being first, is this a good idea? You betcha. <laughs> you ask me, the first will be last, the last will be first. Can we talk about that? Uh, can we talk about that a little bit? All the first, like everybody who's the senior Pastor, will be last. Everybody who with his wife has made enough money over a combined, I don't know, 80 years of working between the two of us to have enough, we'll never be hungry, we'll never see hungry, and that's the first. And we're gonna, can, can we talk a little bit about who this first is that's going to be last? Um, it's just not a completely happy thought. Unless you're last. I'll take it. Think of um, an African-American spiritual that doesn't work in Advent. <coughs> Swing low, sweet chariot. Um, I want to walk in Jerusalem, just like John. Uh, steal away to Jesus. They all work. They all work. The Psalms sound better when poor people sing them. Miriam, Hannah, and Mary will sing of the great reversal. And Luke is big on it. Luke is big on it. Uh, where John is big on the contrast, Luke is big on the reversal uh, for a couple of reasons. One, Luke gets a lot of his information from Mary and the women. We think this is after the third missionary journey. Paul is uh, going to be uh, in Caesarea, then he's going to be in Jerusalem, he's going to be arrested, he's going to be in Caesarea again on his way to Rome, it's going to be this long time there. Luke is there, seldom with him in jail, um, or even attending him in jail like he was in other uh, imprisonments. And so Luke is in Palestine, maybe for the first time in his life. He's not a Palestinian. And he has probably already written most of the book of Acts. And now decides he's got to do a prequel about Jesus. And, but he wasn't there. Of Matthew, Mark, and John, he's the, the one who wasn't there. So he has to ask. We're sure Mary is one of them. And how do we know Mary's one of them? What are the phrases that tell us that Mary told Luke? Five times in Luke's Gospel, it says, Mary treasured these things in her heart. There's only one person who knows that. Luke's not guessing that a mother would think about these things. She said, um, the angels, the angel Gabriel said this to me and I don't know 
Mary didn't, you remember the people in the Bible, don't know they're the people in the Bible. Mary didn't go to a third grade science school class, or she would know how this worked out if she had just gone to Sunday school. Um, and she treasured these things in her heart. The shepherds show up and say the angels spoke to them out in the field. She doesn't know that until they tell them. It's like Simeon and Anna take in the, in the, uh, the, the baby Jesus in the temple and bless him. And Simeon says, I was promised that I would see God's Savior for the world, God's Redeemer of Israel, uh, before I would die. I've seen it. Now I can die in peace. What's Mary supposed to say? Gee, you got that right. We'll put that one in the Bible. That's really good. She's going to. Tra- so we know that Luke is, and in Luke's gospel, the women have names, finally. Um, uh, and it also confuses us. I think there's five Marys in Luke's gospel. Could you just give us a last name? <laughs> that would be helpful, or a father's name to identify, whatever. So we have this reversal. So you got contrast, substitution, exchange, and reversal. So let's, let's look at some quotes. First of all, the exchange. This comes out in poetry, too. Ambrose is uh, probably most known by, uh, if you know him, as the mentor, the person who's in the room, the person who sets uh, Augustine up to be uh, uh, converted, though it's his mother's prayers that make it happen. Ambrose was a really bright guy. Uh, his readings are, his poetry is excellent, and his, uh, his uh, Latin is uh, just wonderful. He was um, invited by the emperor to be the governor of Milan. During the summer, and sometimes for the whole year, the emperor would be in Milan, not in Rome. Rome was a great city, but not a clean or healthy city. And so you'd go out you'd go out to Milan, which is northern Italy. It's still a beautiful place. And uh, so the seat of government would be there. He selects Ambrose to be the governor of Milan. He wants Ambrose. To, and so Ambrose is this. And Ambrose, just one day, I'm serving the emperor. That's a second-class job. Serving God, now that would be first class. I resign, I'm going to be a bishop. Uh, Emperor's not too happy uh, with that, but he keeps his head. I mean, Ambrose keeps his head. Emperor keeps his cool, and he's the governor. The emperor's, the chair, the emperor's chair, if you will, of rhetoric in Milan is open. It goes to Augustine, who's seen as the brightest boy of that, of that brightest boy. He's in his 30s, in that generation. So he goes to Milan to be the professor of rhetoric, still not converted. He hangs out with Ambrose. He's impressed with Ambrose. He's heard of Ambrose. He's impressed with his sermons. He's impressed with his poetry. He's impressed that this is a bright boy. And he's in the service of the church, of the church, really. The church is my mom and her friends back in North Africa. And frankly, it's a bunch of hillbillies, and it's half superstition. And it's just, man, that's, just, that's not my future. I mean, that's part of what Augustine's arrogance he wrestles with. And uh, one of the things that he was impressed with Ambrose, I just love this, because it's still the first we know. He wants to talk to Ambrose. He comes up behind him. It's, it's uh, Ambrose's, um, you can see it, the, the church there. They have the study of Ambrose in Milan. And it's about four steps up to his study. That's kind of like mine, a little bit larger, but um, the, the study Carol that I have in my office. Ambrose comes. He sees he's there, but he's obviously sleeping because he's not moving now. Just, he just stands outside the open door. Um, until Ambrose awakes, and then Ambrose turns a page. Like he just woke up and 
read a little bit and turned the page, but I didn't hear him say anything. <coughs> waits and waits and waits, and Ambrose turns another page. What's going on? Do you know what's going on? Ambrose is reading silently. Augustine had never witnessed that happen. Reading is an oral habit. Faith comes by hearing, not by sight. Comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. So every once in a while, you're horrified about it because you're evangelicals. I tell you, could you just close? I mean, can you? You know, next time I tell you to close your Bible, it's going to be Pastor Jerry's last Sunday with us. But we, could, you, could you just close your Bible and hear the word read? Yeah, I know we all learn in different ways, but we do learn by hearing. Just hear the word. But, so we made a big deal out of it. I'm, I'm the only person still alive that wonders whether the printing press was too much. Um, <laughs> um, uh, you know who Richard John Newhouse is? Anybody? founder first things. One of my favorite quotes, if I have a good quote, I've stolen it from him. He's just a really bright guy. Uh, but one of my favorites is, some of us are so conservative that we would have complained on the second day of creation. <laughs> I'm, still not, I'm still not sure about the printing press. But um, um, that is the first record, he put it in his journal, that was the first record that we have in the ancient world that somebody witnessed somebody reading, not out loud. Now it probably happened before then, Ambrose didn't invent this, but it was so uncommon, it surprised the emperor's, um, the holder of the emperor's chair of rhetoric in Milan at the university. Like, who can do that? So he's just impressed with Ambrose. So Ambrose, um, he will write on the exchange. All right? Um, I'm going to read this to you. He became a child so that you could become a full, mature human being. That's an exchange. It's not, other parts of the Bible say that you can be like him, so he showed you himself so that you could, you could be more like him. You know, uh, I, I use the phrase often, I'm more likely to hit the target if I can see it clearly. Jesus is the target. I read the Gospels, I can see the target more clearly. I'm more likely to hit it if I keep my mind in the Gospels. This is not that. This is something other. He became a child so that I could be mature. How does that exchange work? How kind of a transaction takes place there. He was wrapped in swaddling clothes so that I could be unraveled from the meshes of death. Now you can write this off as poetry and therefore hyperbole, but this works for me. He came to earth so that you could live beneath the stars. Luther, uh, who, can, who can write a hymn or two, uh, isn't away in the manger, he is. Yes. Um, but he has another one that nobody sings. Um, uh, it's kind of contorted, but there's, there's a phrase in it um, that is magnificent. Uh, he doesn't know what to do with it. Calvin will think he knows what to do with it and go further. Um, but Luther's phrase is, the one who sat, who lay in Bethlehem, vulnerable under the stars, at the same time, held the stars in his hands. Mm -hmm. Both, both sides of that comma are true. I'm going to have to think about that some more. <laughs> like, gee, that's just take a lifetime to wrap your mind around that one. Uh, Calvin will well do more with that. And uh, it will come in the arguments about um, the presence of Christ in, the, in communion. There, um, Calvinist, I just read um, 
a really good biography of Beza, his successor. So he's arguing in front of the French nobility. It's the, the young king and Catherine de' Medici, who had very strong Protestant leanings, and the king of Navarre, who had obvious Protestant leanings. He'll retract them later on. That's what will make it so hard for the Huguenots. But Beza's making his appeal. And they're, they're, they all know they're going to get stuck on communion. That, that's, that's where it is. And so Beza will say some things that will distinguish Calvinist, Protestant um, viewpoint from both Catholic and Lutheran. And uh, the difference between Catholic, Catholic and Lutheran, he will say, we all agree on the incarnation of Christ, that for us and for our salvation, he was born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate. But we actually disagree about what that means. And so we, uh, we have these essentials of the faith, the faith that we all affirm, but we actually interpret them differently. We don't think that Christ's body is divisible, and you can't take little pieces of it and put it in a church in Wittenberg and a church in Geneva and a ch- church in Strasbourg and Lausanne and Zurich and in Paris and in Noyens. You just you can't do that. The body of Christ is a whole thing. It's a human thing. You can't just take little pieces of us. And when Beza wants to get snarky about it, he says you can't put a finger here and a toe there. You just, can't, you just can't divide it up. And where is this body? Well, it's in heaven. You just said so in the Apostles' Creed. Who ascended into heaven, sitteth at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to Jesus quick and the dead. So where is Jesus during communion? Seated in heaven, which is exactly where we need him to be, doing exactly what we need. He says this is an irreplaceable ministry. We won't make it without that ministry. So don't think of him as sitting on the table somehow. Though the Lutherans will say that his body is in around and through the elements, and the Catholics will say uh, the elements become the body. Um, uh, 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 Zwingli before him said that's hocus pocus. Um, That's how we get the phrase. And it's not magic. Um, And so Calvin will be the one who runs with. I love this. But we are together with him in even a more special way. So how is he present here? Calvin says, you just asked the wrong question. It's how are we present there? It's not that he descends again. The Bible doesn't talk about him descending at communion. But it does talk about us ascending to be with him. So lift up your voice. We lift them up. Lift up your praise. Our hearts are lifted up. We are with Christ. And in his communion with the Father... That's what it is. So we don't think about descent as we think about elevation in communion. I think Calvin got that right. He came to earth so that you could live beneath the stars. There was, uh, actually it's supposed to be beyond the stars, sorry. There was no place for him in the inn so that there could be many many dwelling places for you in heaven. (coughs) Well, this is just great poetry. He's just taking different parts of the scripture and showing the contrast and talking about it as an exchange. That the first, the act of Christ makes this benefit for us possible. He was rich, but he became poor for us. His poverty is our riches. Um, and his weakness is our strength. Ooh, I'll think about that one for a while. He is poor for us. You know, the, the quote I made today, wouldn't do it in a sermon online, um, but the quote from the prime minister who said, until the lamb lays with the wolf, uh, we better be the wolves. Well, that's about as cynical as you get. That was Ehud Barak. Um, and a prime minister of Israel. And in saying that, he doesn't distinguish himself from any other prime minister or president or king anywhere. 
until peace is possible, we will be the strongest. Yeah? That, that's, that's how we think about it. That's how we act. To be asked to do something different is, well, in this passage, you're, you're going to say to some kid, put your hand in the nest of the asp. I'm not doing that. I'm not doing that anytime soon. Jesus has to show up before I do that one. Huh? And maybe somebody else's kid goes first. <laughs> if you're okay with that. I'd like to be have more faith in that. But if your kid goes first, that'll, that'll help me out a lot. So um, uh, for, for Ambrose, uh, his weakness is our strength. He's poor for us. But in himself, he is rich. He's changing these exchanges and the manner of the exchanges by each phrase. You can see him lying there in swaddling clothes. But what you cannot see is that he is God's son. Well, that's, that's great. Calvin, uh, Calvin who has read Ambrose, um, and he, it, it, it's not like it, it jumps um, uh, 1,200 years or four, uh, uh, 1,100 years between the two of them. There's other exchanges in between. This is the wonderful exchange which, out of his measureless benevolence, he has made with us. So this is gift giving. That becoming son of man with us, he has made us sons of God with him. You and I are going to hesitate that a little bit. Should It's in Calvin. So, uh, not that he was perfect in all things. He gets, the Eastern Church has, has made this an important shining doctrine. God became human that we might become God. Now, they don't mean by that the fourth member of the Trinity. But think in terms of divine and human. The divine became human so that the human could become divine. We'd like to say, well, more so, or more like the divine or imitating better the divine the becoming that's just uh, a little more the same way you and I hesitate as Protestants our sensibilities our piety about Mary being the mother of God I hate to break the news to you friends but Mary is the mother of God Jesus is God the only way out of that syllogism is to say he ain't or that she ain't his mother she is he is it's a true statement we just don't know what to do, don't do with it because we've seen what other people have done with it. And it just, uh, you don't do that with it, so we don't do it at all. Um, the Eastern Church is all over, far more so than the Catholic Church. Um, that, uh, uh, but this incarnation is a uniting of div- divinity and humanity. Here's where they can teach us, and Calvin is great at this, because again, the, the, the wars over the sacrament um, helped sharpen their Christologies. Jesus rises from the dead. Yes? Oh, let me do that again. Jesus rises from the dead. Yes? yes. yes. Thank you. Um, and um, he's in the garden, and we hear this story. Mary recognizes him, goes to embrace him, and he says, oh, I'm not yet ascended to the Father. So he's some, some sort of, something. he's something spooky. He's some ghost. He's so, he's spiritual, not physical. He's whatever, something's incomplete. That's how we read that. That's not the best reading. The best reading is that relationship um, and the way that we had it, like friend to friend, if you will, is not it. It's um, now I assume a role of savior of the world, not just of the villages I meet in Palestine. But Paul is very clear. Um, This very same Jesus who leaves you will, will come again. That's in Luke's Gospel. 
but that when God took on humanity, he never let it go. Jesus is the eternal God-man. I think, I think in the back of our heads, I don't think you would affirm this, but in the back of your heads, he was God, then he was God and man, and now he's God again. No. He was God, then he was God and man, and forever will be God and man. When he ascends, he takes our humanity with him, fully human. He takes our humanity with him, just like he brought divinity down in his birth. It's the Greek Orthodox Church that really runs with this idea. Becomes human that we can become divine. Comes to earth that we can go to heaven. Um, But we are not to think of Jesus as the second person of the Trinity, formally Jesus. That's just flat out heresy. As if he faked it for 33 years. He took it on. Took it on. Can't relinquish it. What, what would be the point of relinquishing it? This was, this was not some 33-year hiatus in the eternity of God. And Jesus says, well, okay, this is going to be brutal. But it's, you know, a thousand years or like a night, a watch in the night. I can put up with anything for 33 years. Eh? You know? That's, that's not that. He's going to take it on for all eternity. Take on its limits, if you will, so that we can be less limited for all eternity. Um, I think one of the underplayed uh, uh, doctrines among evangelicals, you and me, is the ascension of Christ and its meaning. So, Calvin, that becoming son of man with us, he has made us sons of God with him, that by his descent to earth, he has prepared an ascent to heaven for us. He took on the humanity so that humanity can be taken up. That by taking on our mortality, he has conferred his immortality upon us. That accepting our weakness, he has strengthened us by his power. That receiving our poverty unto himself, he has transferred his wealth to us. That taking the weight of our iniquity upon himself, which oppressed us, he has closed us with his righteousness. Well, these statements of exchange, can I say, also work really well. Both Ambrose and Calvin were writing. Calvin was writing in Latin when he wrote this. Uh, often writes in French, but wrote in Latin when he wrote this. Uh, Latin lends itself to sharp contrasts like this, uh, more so than Greek, a more subtle language and um, more in terms of uh, substitution and uh, like contrast. So let me read a longer quote of Calvin. I'm sorry. Uh, this is from the Institutes. But if you'll notice, this is from the 1541 French edition, which was his first edition, um, and for the first time translated into English in 2009. Elsie McKee teaches at Princeton. Um, just, it's a great gift to us. And uh, the quote I'm going to read is, it's, it, it, other, like you look at in the institutes that it's book four, uh, where I have under exchange, book four, chapter seven, paragraph two. Can't do that with this version because Calvin didn't divide it up that way. But his summary of the first half, which is the theological half, as he's making the transition to what we would call the more pastoral half of his institutes, um, this is his summary. So if you want to, I'm going to let Rick hold this just because I know he'll just uh, be in heaven. (laughs) Um, uh, It's it's wonderful. But let, let me read this. This is his summary of the of eight chapters of Here's the Faith of the Church. We see clearly how people are devoid and stripped of all good. Well, welcome to Calvin's world. And how they lack all that pertains to their salvation. We ain't got nothing. 
It's a great phrase. It says that all that we bring to the salvation conversation with God is our sins. That's all we're going to bring. That is why if a person wants something to help him in his need, he must go outside himself and seek his help elsewhere. That's a beautiful truth. Our Lord presents himself freely to us in his son Jesus Christ, offering us in him all happiness in place of our misery, all abundance in place of our poverty, and opening to us in him all his heavenly treasures and riches so that all our faith may look to his very dear son, all our expectation may be in him, and all our hope may rest on him. This is a secret, a hidden philosophy, which cannot be understood by syllogisms. But those people understand it whose eyes our Lord has opened in order that in his light we may see clearly. We are taught by faith to know that all the good we need and which we lack in ourselves is in God and is in his Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, in whom the Father has established all the fullness of his blessings and abundance so that we may draw everything from there as from a very full fountain. Now it remains for us, that's all we got to do, for us to see in him and by prayers. This is his transition to a chapter on prayer. Ask from him what we have learned is there. Ask for what has been offered. For otherwise to know God as the master, the author, and the giver of all good, who invites us to ask them from him, and for us not to address him, not to ask anything from him, would not benefit us at all if we didn't pray. It would be as if someone disdained and left buried and hidden under the earth a treasure about which he had been told. That's Calvin. That's coming. Yeah, he's going to take eight, eight chapters and tell you the faith of the church. He's not going to shy away from the task of what um, um, I'm on the, well, invented a board, now I'm a member of the board, younger leadership is uh, the fellowship community, which is the gathering of evangelicals in the Presbyterian Church. Uh, we're meeting in uh, Washington, D.C. at National Presbyterian Church in May. If you want to come, it'll be a great, um, a great time. But we think we have three missions. Get the gospel right. Yeah, there's a critique in it. We're not sure that the whole Presbyterian Church has a grasp on it or it has a grasp on it. That's a critique. Um, I think we're right in that critique. Um, get the gospel right. Get the gospel out. Like, for, at some point, these are internal squabbles. There's 7 billion people on the planet. Don't think you got it. Perfect the Presbyterian Church before you can proclaim Christ to the nations. And get the gospel deep within. That we need to be a transformed if we're going to be a salt and light and help an ecclesial body, the Presbyterian Church in the world, we need to be the salt and light. We need to be reformed according to God's word. We're, we're not the Savior. We're the thing the Savior may use as a tool in his hand. Um, in, in our rare, humble moments, that's what we think. Um, this, this idea, uh, what Calvin uses here of, ex of exchange, that this is the summary of what's happened. We're stuck. We can't help ourselves. That's good news. Because if you could help yourself, all I could do is say, work harder. And you ain't going to work harder. That's part of sin. I could quit on it too early. Um, the good news is, I, I like to say this in Luke's Gospel, is, is the impression I, it's a few verses and a couple of stories that only Luke has. But it's the impression you get from Luke's gospel, I think, if you read it carefully. In Luke's gospel, salvation is not defined as being in. It's defined as coming in. The prodigal son, on his way home, is saved. 
He has the speech made up. Uh, I, I blew it. I don't, I don't deserve to be your son. Take me back as a servant. He just starts his speech. The father has already run out and met him and welcomed him home. The kid doesn't even get his full repentance. He can never fully repent. None of us are even that good. We don't know our sins altogether. That it's, it's not the being in. The elder brother is in the whole time. The whole time. Is that boy saved? You know how the parable ends? The father says to the elder son, this is your brother who was lost. Come on in. End of parable. Like, so are you? Come in to the barn and celebrate. You're saved. Stand outside and gripe, though you never left. That's not the definition of salvation, which is why in Luke's gospel, the Pharisees, Jesus comes down so hard on the Pharisees, in Luke's gospel is, you all think you're in. If you think you're in, i got nothing for you. If you think you, think you got it all right, i got nothing to teach you. The sinners, well now, the publicans, the woman taken in adultery. Uh, the woman who washes my feet with her hair and tears. They know they're out. Good news. You'll be in. I think uh, I think I get that uh, from Calvin almost more clearly than from any other of the, uh, the great uh, reformers and theologians. Okay, I got a few minutes here. Let me go to the last one. Reversal. This is contemporary. Um, Kester Bruin, if you want to read a good book, The Complex Christ, it's a complex book. It's actually meant to be a missional book. It's a book that's read by every person half my age who's starting a new church uh, that's in the English-speaking world. Um, it's the gospel is right, we got the gospel right, we got to get the gospel out, but I'm not sure we've got it deep within. We need to become different people to preach this gospel to a different generation. Not a different gospel, but a different people. You just can't grow up to be Jerry and think this is going to work on the street corner in Little Italy. You need to become a different represent, representation of Christ. So it's a complex Christ. It's, nothing wrong with the way Jerry went about it, very institutional, but that's not, you know, you're not going to plant churches so that someday they can have cathedral like places where people can worship. That day is over. It's going to be 25 here meeting at Starbucks and 22 over here meeting at Pete's Coffee. And that's, what, that's the form of the church. And good news, Luke, who writes the book of Acts, would recognize that church more quickly than he would First Pres downtown. It's okay. And so, but one of his things is the reversal. And this, um, when he's uh, kind of critiquing institutionalization and got to be big and powerful and strong. I, I, just, I just did it in front of you. That we're going to hold our national convention at the National Presbyterian Church in D.C. <laughs> I like it. It's an evangelical congregation, mostly. Uh, they fight about those things. The pastors have always been evangelical. They are my best friends. The last four I've known really well. And I like being there and like having our conference there. Uh, if this conference was at the Mill Creek Presbyterian Church in Hookstown, which was my first congregation, I wouldn't be bragging about, gee, what a great venue we have for our next meeting. So I just, I just pulled off uh, what, what um, uh, Bruin doesn't like. The Great Reversal. Walking with the crowds carried along by the pressing forward. This is us. We're in a crowd. Think of yourself on a sidewalk in Manhattan. Each one eager to get ahead, but each one starting the same, born as a baby and from then on, struggling towards meaning, power, and influence, 
be someone, be remembered, make a big impression, leave some indelible mark in your three score years and ten. From birth, a struggle to find eternity, to burst through life with such dazzling intensity that everyone will remember forever. But, walking the other way, picking out a route against the crowds, a solitary figure passes me, passes all of us, all straining away innocence to become someone, and he passes us <coughs> in quiet chaos in the crowd. Christ, eternal, omniscient, creator, beyond time, source of wisdom, and beyond petty claims of influence, in very nature God, slips into reverse and walks back past us, away from kingship, away from power, away from influence, away from eternity, away from wisdom, toward infancy, calmly stepping into the body of a tiny child. And even as this baby grows, figuring out how to control the body he has himself designed, he still walks the other way, realizing that life cannot be found in the struggle for permanence, but in giving it up. This great reversal subverts me. Tired of pressing forward, I realize I need to turn, for what I have been searching for has just walked past me the other way. Oh. Like that? Yeah. Well, so may we live. So may your, so may your pastor learn to live. Uh, maybe it's not too late. Let me offer a prayer. Perhaps at the end of every paragraph, we should have said, oh God, it's a mystery to us. But it is also a revelation of yours. You don't want to pretend to know what we haven't been told, what we have been told. You have showed us these things. Don't give us the false, don't allow us the false impression that we have to understand it fully to do it at all. That perhaps in the doing we will understand more. And that always we will understand enough to do and to be as your eternal purposes have called us. So in the contrast of life and death, light and darkness, love and apathy, in the substitution of the Savior for us, in the great exchange of your goodness, for our harshness and the great reversal that we've witnessed in the Savior. Come. Come save us. Come save us soon. Amen. Thank you. Thank you for letting me preach at you twice in one day. <laughs> this was a great day. <laughs>